Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. My name is Paula Downs, I am Andrew's younger daughter and on today's show I'm delighted to be reading chapter 14 from my granddad's book Around the Horn by Frank Downs. Chapter 14 includes 1949 Birmingham, CBSO, Schwartz, Kendall Taylor, Mystery of Man in Brown Suit, Beecham. Early in 1949, I was surprised one morning to receive a telegram from the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra offering me a principal position in the horn section, and though flattered by the invitation, I found the decision to accept a very difficult one. I was extremely happy in Liverpool, and I was reluctant to leave. The prospect of playing in a principal position in Birmingham after playing as a sub-principal for almost three years seemed to be the overriding factor in such a move. When I was subsequently offered the prospect of a house in Birmingham, my mind was made up. Accommodation in Liverpool was still a problem. The Birmingham Orchestra, reformed after the tragic death of Leslie Howard in 1943, was now directed by George Weldon. When I arrived in 1949, some of the pre-war orchestra remained, though there were many new faces. One such newcomer was the principal trombone player Harold Greensmith, former principal of the Bournemouth Municipal Orchestra. I remember Harold describing in graphic detail the morning in 1943 when the first rehearsal of the newly formed orchestra took place. Players were milling around in the band room beforehand, old members making the acquaintance of new ones. Harold, a complete stranger to Birmingham, was looking anxiously around trying to find his second trombone colleague whom, of course, he had never met. Jack Hopkins was the man he was looking for without much success. Someone eventually pointed Jack out to him and Harold advanced towards him. Jack, a cockney who had spent many years in the pre-war Birmingham orchestra, had found a corner of the room and was practising his warm-up exercises on his instrument as Harold approached and seemed oblivious to anything going on around. There could not have been two more diverse characters in a trombone section. Harold was an extrovert, a self-assured and highly intelligent individual, whilst Jack, a fine trombonist, sometimes gave the impression of being as dim as a top-H lamp. Dr Livingstone, I presume, said Harold, putting out his hand to greet Jack. No, came the puzzled reply. I'm Jack Hopkins. The orchestra, separated from its joint contract with the pre-war BBC Midland Orchestra, now operated independently, though the BBC still supported it with frequent broadcasting engagements. It took a little time to get accustomed to my new role as a principal, and also to the surroundings and conditions, which were vastly different from Liverpool. Our town hall base disappointingly lacked the warm and friendly atmosphere of the Philharmonic Hall. One felt in Liverpool that the hall and the orchestra were an integral part of the proceedings. Administrative staff were on hand to sort out any difficulties and one felt welcome. In Birmingham at that time, bureaucratic officialdom at the town hall made one feel that the hall was only a venue for concert giving. The contrast was most noticeable. 
Birmingham had in those years a very enlightened and enterprising educational music programme and the orchestra in various sections carried out a well-planned programme of school visits in spite of a certain minority group of councillors who repeatedly opposed it on the grounds of extravagant financial expenditure. In fact, the same group went so far as saying that the city could not afford a symphony orchestra. For some months, the orchestra was the subject of many political arguments. One mad scheme suggested that the orchestras of Bournemouth and Birmingham should merge and spend six months in each place. Thankfully, the Philistines were finally defeated. As in Liverpool, our educational visits were not without humorous incidents. I remember one cold frosty morning in the winter of 1950, arriving at a school in the city to play in a school hall packed with children sitting cross-legged on the floor. The associate conductor of the CBSO, Harold Gray, was directing and talking to the children about the programme. Before we began to play, he asked principals of sections to demonstrate their instruments by playing a few bars. Beginning with the violin, he asked the leader to play. I must in fairness add that it was a bitterly cold day and the temperature in the hall was too low for comfort, certainly not good for playing a string instrument with cold fingers at 9.30am. Our leader played a few bars and then Harold Gray turned to him and asked him to play a few more bars including double stopping, which means playing two or more notes at once. The leader subsequently played a passage from the last movement of the Max Bruch Concerto in G minor, which appropriately included double stopping. Now, what did that sound like, said Harold to our young audience. Hands up! And Harold pointed to a young lad near the front. Awful, sir, came the innocent reply. We travelled extensively as far south as Bournemouth and north to Edinburgh. Midland towns regularly visited were Nottingham, the Albert Hall, Sheffield, the City Hall, Wolverhampton, Civic Hall and Leicester's de Montfort Hall. All four revived memories of an anecdotal nature, the first of which in Nottingham involved the renowned pianist Kendall Taylor. We had finished the rehearsal for the evening concert in which he was to play Beethoven's Emperor Concerto an hour or so earlier than scheduled and it was suggested that we should go on to rehearse with him a concerto by the contemporary Yugoslav composer Skerjank, which we were to perform in London at the Yugoslav Embassy on the following day. Quite early in the proceedings, however, a rather dishevelled individual with muffler and cloth cap wandered into the auditorium and sat down, arms folded, a few rows from the front. He appeared to listen attentively throughout with a great deal of interest. Then at the final chord of the concerto, he called out to the conductor. Oi, I say, what was that called? A surprised George Weldon turned to face him. That was the piano concerto by Skirjank. Bloody awful, wasn't it? came the critical reply as he walked out into the street. It was always a pleasure to play in Wolverhampton's well-designed Civic Hall with its spacious orchestral platform and generous dressing room accommodation. But in all my years of orchestral playing and experience, I cannot recall anything to compare with one particular concert we gave there. To this day, the mystery of the man in the brown suit has never been solved. 
We had rehearsed in the afternoon for the evening concert and there was one vacant seat on the last desk of the first violins due to a last-minute illness. We came onto the platform in the evening. Tuned as usual, the leader came on to applause, followed closely by the conductor, George Weldon. He raised his baton to begin and with a look of astonishment put it down again. A little man in a brown suit, violin tucked under his arm, appeared from the rear of the platform. He could not have been more conspicuous as he made his way down the tiered steps in what sounded like hobnailed boots to the vacant seat in the violin section. The audience seemed to see the humorous side of the situation and applauded. Weldon was far from amused and the concert proceeded. Came the interval and the little man disappeared and has not been seen since. A cartoon appeared in the press the next day of a man in a striped football jersey, violin under his arm. The caption, the Wolverhampton Wanderer. The cities of Sheffield and Leicester and their respective halls recall two of the legendary stories of Sir Thomas Beecham, which are of course legion. There is no doubt that the menacing grin of the two concrete lions, now thankfully removed, placed on either side of the platform of Sheffield City Hall were, to say the least, an acoustical disaster. Facing the concert audiences, they not only looked hideous but caused untold difficulties for the various sections of the orchestra. There was reverberation and consequent time lag between strings, wind and percussion, which musicians dreaded. Sir Thomas made his views quite clear over the years, usually before a concert, much to the chagrin of some city dignitaries. Feeling became so bad that at one stage they met the maestro and pleaded that he should not exacerbate the situation. The plea was met with silence. On his next visit, Sir Thomas came onto the platform, stopped for quite a few seconds and looked at the first lion, then pointedly he transferred his glance across the platform to the other and with a shake of his head mounted the rostrum. Not a word was uttered. The de Montfort Hall in Leicester, a most comfortable one for orchestral players, was the venue for a concert which Beecham conducted with his wife as soloist in a Mozart piano concerto. The concerto had gone extremely badly and Sir Thomas followed her from the platform in a huff to be met by the orchestral manager in the wings. Do you want the piano moved for the second half, Sir Thomas? he asked diplomatically. No, leave it, came the reply. The bloody thing will crawl off on its own. To play for him was always a tremendous experience. He came to Liverpool several times whilst I was there. His personality was unique in the world of music. He seemed sometimes to ignore the technique of conducting, apparently trusting intuition to convey his demands to his players. The enthusiasm he created in the orchestra on those visits was extraordinary, and his never-failing wit and humour were infectious. My brother recalls the occasion when Beecham came to the recording studios one morning in London. The maestro had not been feeling too well and sat down to conduct the rehearsal. After a few minutes, he called out to the brass section, First trombone, you are far too loud! There was an immediate reply from that section, the first trombone has not come yet, Sir Thomas. The riposte was instantaneous. Well, when he does, tell him he's too loud. There was no answer to that. End of chapter 14
To end this podcast episode, I am going to play the second movement of Andrew Downs' Concerto for Piano and Symphony Orchestra, which was premiered at Birmingham Town Hall, which Frank mentions a number of times in this episode. This work was composed for pianist Duncan Honeybourne with the Central England Ensemble, conducted by Anthony Bradbury, with leader Anna Downs and leader of the violas Cynthia Downs. This is the recording of the premiere on the 1st of March 2009.